And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Amen. Let's bless God in this house. All things, everything, everything's included. Nothing's left out. Every single thing going on in our lives will work together for good. Amen. God, you are amazing. We don't know how you do this. And it's not our business to figure it out either. But we believe your word today. Hallelujah. We take you at your word. Bless your name. Lord, I know you've already started to do this amongst us today. But perfect it. Perfect it, Lord, as your word comes forth. In the name of Jesus. I'm your humble servant, Lord. I need a touch from you right now. I need wisdom. I need your counsel. I need your guidance. I need strength. I even need healing in my body, Lord, to deliver this message. I look to you, Lord. Hallelujah. As you're touching me, touch every individual person. Lord, in this sanctuary and those who are watching online. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you for your grace and for your goodness, Lord. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. Please be seated. Hallelujah. We're in the book of Acts and we're at Acts 13. For those of you who are joining us for the first time here or online, we've been journeying through the book of Acts since September last year. And it's been a wonderful journey exploring the beginnings of the early church, the working of the Holy Spirit and how the name of Jesus was being exalted, being preached, and the transformation that was brought not only to the Jews, but beyond the borders of Jerusalem and Judea. And today we're going to see the launch of Paul's first missionary journey. Really exciting to come to this place in the scripture today. So prior to chapter 13, where we are today, The church that was the center of Christianity is the church in Jerusalem. You could say like Jerusalem was like the equivalent of our national office or the HQ, the base of operations. If we go back to Acts chapter 1 verse 4, remember that Jesus told his disciples there to wait in Jerusalem. And he said to them, when the Holy Spirit comes, then you will be a witness To me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's Acts 1.8. Jesus said to them, wait, not stay. He said, wait in Jerusalem. But the church in Jerusalem became compromised quite quickly. Because they couldn't find a way to break away from their rituals and years of tradition. And in fact, as we journey through the book, we will see in Acts chapter 21, 
but they're still offering temple sacrifices, even though they know they're saved by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ alone. They were struggling to break away from legalism, from rituals, and from Judaism. So chapter 13 here is, just to put a time marker on it, Chapter 13 is about 15 to 20 years after Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the believers on the day of Pentecost. So we've moved forward about 15 to 20 years, and the church in Jerusalem is still waiting. They're still waiting, and it's becoming evident that they are not going to fulfill this great commission. So what does God do? God raises up another church. God raises up another set of people. And we will see from Acts 13 onwards that the church that becomes really the center of Christianity and mission and sending out of the apostles and reaching out beyond the Jewish world into the Gentile world becomes the church at Antioch. God is going to use someone else. Even though we saw towards the end of chapter 9, the Lord nudging Peter by the Holy Spirit into Gentile territory to heal Aeneas, to raise up from the dead Dorcas, then to live in a house with a Gentile called Simon the Tanner. And then eventually in Acts chapter 10, Peter ends up in a Gentile household and they receive Christ. Even though that's happened, and then Peter goes in Acts chapter 11 to defend being and eating and staying with Gentiles. Even all of that has happened. Acts chapter 13, they're still... In Jerusalem, they're not getting it. So God is going to use another. And God chooses to use this church in Antioch. Did you know that God has given you something specific to do? He has. Philippians 2.13 You were created for God's good pleasure. So I want to ask you, what has God called you to do? And are you still in Jerusalem, or have you moved out into what God has called you to do? You see, if we don't do what God has called us to do, you know what God will do? (laughs) He will raise up somebody else. He will use somebody else. We have to recognize that the work of God will go forward with or without our cooperation. None of us can hold hostage the plan and purposes of God. God will raise up somebody else. In the Old Testament, the book of Esther, we see there a Jewish woman who through extraordinary circumstances becomes the queen of Assyria. And then if you read in the book, you see there's a plot there to totally exterminate and wipe out the Jews. Esther's uncle, his name is Mordecai, he tells Esther to speak to the king to overthrow these plans that's going to wipe out the Jews. But Esther says to her uncle, I can't just go into the king without him inviting me 
I could be in line for death, for the death penalty, capital punishment. I can't just go in. And then Mordecai says something really, really profound, which I think a lot of us miss, because we jump to the end of Esther 4.14, and we can probably all quote where it says, Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So it's, it's, it's all... Uh, kind of centered around Esther, isn't it? But read the first part of the verse. He says, For if you remain completely silent at this time, Esther, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Nobody can hold God hostage. His plan, his purposes will always come to pass. And if we opt out, for whatever reason... God raises up another. And it may mean, in this case, if Esther had opted out, perhaps her life would have been lost. Her uncle would have been slain. But God has a plan. Because remember, he's bringing Jesus Christ into the earth. He doesn't matter what the devil will try to do to cut off that line, that seed. Jesus was coming as a redeemer. So he would raise up another. So God's plan will go forward with or without us. So the church at Jerusalem has stalled. It lacks a sense of urgency. They're too much into themselves and their traditions. So God is going to raise up another, somebody else. So the church at Antioch now begins to take center stage. And this, there's some really, really rich lessons and principles here, I'm just going to skip through them like you're skipping through a field of lilies. But, yeah. Okay, so Acts chapter 13 verse 1 says, Now in the church that was at Antioch there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So notice it says that this church in Antioch has prophets and teachers. Uh, One commentator says that from the Greek construction, and I can't read Greek, but I'll take his word. From the Greek construction, uh, this passage is saying that there were three prophets and two teachers. So the first three that are named are prophets, and then Barnabas and Saul are the teachers. We have to understand that back then, they didn't have church buildings like we have, where we come and we're assembled today. The the early church was a network of house churches. They met in homes. So the prophets were those who moved around the homes. They were like itinerant speakers, you can say. They moved around the homes and they were proclaiming and speaking forth the word of God. The pastors and the teachers were, for most of the time, stationary. So Barnabas and Saul, they were stationary. And perhaps they oversaw the ministry and was responsible for maybe two or three of these house churches. And they were the ones that would administer like the shepherding, discipling, and discipline. So I just want to distinguish the difference between what the prophets were doing. They were moving around but the pastors and the teachers were more or less stationary. And this passage here names 
five leaders at the Church of Antioch. I want to just go through this quickly. So the first of all, we see Barnabas. Barnabas, he has a great gift of encouragement. In fact, that was his nickname. Barnabas means son of encouragement. He's a gracious man. We've met him before in our journey in Acts. He's wealthy. Acts 4 verse 37 tells us he sold some land and donated the proceeds to the apostles to get the church off the ground. Barnabas is a Hellenist Jew. He's from Cyprus, so he's not from Jerusalem or Israel. So he's viewed by the traditional Jews as an outsider because he doesn't live in the land or he, didn't, he wasn't born and raised in the land. So we have Barnabas and then we have Simeon who is called Niger. Niger means black. So it is thought that Niger was from Africa. Niger is a black man. Simeon is his Hebrew name, and Niger is his Greek name. And there's good evidence, and some commentators say that they believe that this Simeon, called Niger, is the same Simeon that helped Jesus to carry that cross beam. On the way to Calvary when Jesus was tired, some commentators believe that this is the same person, Matthew 27:32. And then there's Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is a country in North Africa. So again, Lucius is probably another black man. So what we see here, 40% of the leadership in Antioch are Africans. Isn't that amazing? Who tell you he wasn't in the Bible? <laughs> and what's wonderful about this, it doesn't seem as if there's any racial tension or any big deal about ethnicities. They're accepted. They're part of the leadership team in Antioch. And God has just turned the focus from the Jerusalem church to this cosmopolitan place in Antioch where there are people on all levels, all strata of society, the rich, the wealthy, from Africa. And it's just wonderful to see that unity there, isn't it? So that tells us God can do the same in this time. And then there's Menaean. He is a rich aristocrat. The scripture tells us he was raised in the household of Herod. Don't get your Herods mixed up. There are six of them in the scripture. So this is not the Herod, obviously, in chapter 12, who didn't give the glory to God. An angel struck him and he was eaten by worms because he's dead. So it's not that Herod. This is the Herod who beheaded John. This is a Herod to whom Pilate sent Jesus. And then Herod sent him back to Pilate. So this is the Herod that uh, Menaean grew up with. But isn't it interesting that the two of them grew up together. One was a wicked ruler. And the other one was a church leader. So it's not where you come from. Amen. And then there's Saul. We met him in Acts 7 and 9. And it's interesting that Saul is listed last here. Amen. Even though we know he's going to be the predominant 
person and character from here on in the book of Acts. So verse 2 says, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Amen. Notice here that the Holy Spirit is a person. Someone say the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is not an influence, as some cults would want us to believe. The Holy Spirit is a person. So we don't address the Holy Spirit as it. Another, some, of the, some of the verses in the King James don't help us with this, because it does that. But the Holy Spirit is a person. Notice the Holy Spirit says, separate to me for the work that I have called them. He's a person. Ephesians 4.30 tells us not to grieve the Holy Spirit. You can't grieve a force. You can't grieve an influence. He is a person. Acts 5.3 there tells us that um, we should not lie to the Holy Spirit. Ananias and Sapphira. Peter said to Ananias, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? You can't lie to a force or influence. So like the Father and like the Son, the Holy Spirit is a person. And let's notice here how they were positioned to hear from the Holy Spirit. The scripture says they ministered to the Lord. That word ministered could be translated worshipped. They were worshipping the Lord. And it also has a connotation that this worship was public. It's public service. And it was what they would normally do. So in other words, this wasn't a special service. So they weren't in convention or traveled far to some conference. This is just normal Worship, like what we're doing today. Amen. Daily or weekly worship. They were ministering to the Lord. That's why it's important to come to church. To worship and minister to the Lord. Because in that environment, the Holy Spirit will speak to us. He will speak to you. And he also says they are fasting. What is fasting? Well, is fasting a way to twist God's arm to get him to do what you want him to do? God, you know, I really want a Mercedes. So I'm going to go into a three-day fast and twist his arm. No. Fasting is a period of time to set aside the things of the flesh, to prioritize the things of the spirit. Most of us, even though we're Christians, and indeed the world runs the program of body first, then soul, then spirit. And we know that the media, they hype this up to the hill, don't they? They would tell your body, you need this, even when you don't need it really. And you know, if we check our lives over the past week, probably most of us, if we're honest, will see that we were running the body soul spirit program 
So first of all, I got to feed my face. I got to look good. Then I want to feel good. And then if there's any time, I'll probably read my Bible and pray. But fasting inverts that. It turns it the other way around. And fasting runs this program, the spirit first, then the soul, and then the body. 1 Thessalonians 5.23. The Apostle Paul says that God, that he would preserve a spirit, soul, and body. That's the order in the scripture. I have a whole teaching on fasting, but I'm not going to go there. The primary purpose of fasting, what do you think that is? The primary purpose of fasting is to humble ourselves before God. That's the primary purpose of fasting. Psalm 69.10 and Psalm 35.13 says, I humbled my soul with fasting. So that's the primary purpose of of fasting. So in this environment where they're ministering to the Lord, worshipping and fasting, the Holy Spirit speaks. Hallelujah. And in verse 3 it says, Then having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them, they sent them away. Amen. Let me just say here that wherever the prophetic ministries are operating in our church, the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 14, 29, let one prophesy and the others judge. So there should be no prophetic ministry unless the church is prepared to judge what has been said. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 says, test all things and hold on to what is good. The scripture is not prescriptive here to say how the Holy Spirit spoke. There's no detail in here. But if we use our imagination, perhaps that, I believe maybe God was already speaking to Barnabas and Saul about going out on mission. And while they're fasting, while they're ministering and worshipping God, perhaps one of these prophets named here maybe stood up and said, I believe that God is saying that we should send these men out onto the mission field could have been something like that but maybe another would say well let's continue in prayer and fasting and let's see if this is what God is really saying let's not rush into this let's just see is, is God really saying this and of course perhaps Barnabas and Saul already had a witness in their hearts so they continue to seek God in prayer and fasting, and then perhaps they came to the conclusion, you know what, we think this is what God is saying to us, that we need to release these men and send them out into the mission field. So the scripture says they laid hands on them, and that's authorization. And they sent them, that's important. One preacher says some went, but they weren't sent. It's important that we are sent and there's an accountability line there, isn't there? And a responsibility from the sender and to those who are being sent. That's important. Verse 4 says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Notice that they were sent by the church, but they were also sent by the Holy Spirit. 
They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So this is where Paul's first missionary journey commences in the book of Acts. And there are three of these journeys. This is the first one. I find it interesting to see where they went to first of all. First of all, they got 16 miles from Antioch to the seaport of Seleucia. And then they sail 130 miles to the Isle of Cyprus, where Barnabas is from. There's two things I just want to pick up on here, which I feel is important. Notice what we see here is a blending of God's sovereign authority and direction with God allowing them to choose where they want to go. Because the scripture says that the Holy Spirit said, separate Barnabas and Saul to the work I have called them, but the Holy Spirit didn't tell them where to go. They chose where they were going to go. You know, sometimes we're waiting for God to tell us to do things when God has put that within our remit to use our life and experience to make those choices. When my children were younger, Sonia and I would choose what clothes they wear. What color socks and trousers and all the rest of it. But if we had to do that now, and that's, sometimes that's why we're late for church. You're not wearing that to church today. As we grow and mature in God, God doesn't expect to tell you in the morning what pair of socks to put on and come on now, brethren. So the Holy Spirit says, separate to the work I have called, but they choose the destination. As we mature in the Christian walk, God expects us to choose. And I can say, when I, when I was sent, I could say I was sent to Wolverhampton Church here. I know that. I knew that God was sending me here. I'm not saying I didn't pray or anything like that, but I, 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 just, I just knew it, that this was the time, this was the place to be. As we mature, I believe that God deals with us in that way as adults, and he doesn't treat us. God didn't twist my arm and say, if you don't go to Wolverhampton, you're going dead. No, he didn't. He didn't. He had been working on my heart, and when that door opened up, I knew And as much as I believe God chose me to come here, I chose to come as well. Amen. So we see here a blending here of how God works. The other thing I want to show you is that ministry starts in familiar territory. Why did they go to Cyprus? Well, Barnabas was from Cyprus. Barnabas was from Cyprus. And you know, the mission field is a lot closer to us than we think. Most of us, when we think of mission, we think of going to some remote place of the earth where there's no electricity, no running water, just absolutely dreadful conditions there. I'm not saying that sometimes people are not called to go to these places, but, you know, mission is your family. Mission is your community. Mission is where you study at school or college. Mission is your workplace. 
So they went to somewhere where they knew people, and Barnabas at this point is leading this mission. In Mark 5, Jesus delivers a demonized man. He's living naked in a cemetery, and he's self-harming, cutting himself with stones. Jesus comes across Galilee, sees this man, and he delivers him from his torment. And then as Jesus and his disciples are going to return back across the sea, the man says, I want to go with you. You know, Jesus, you just delivered me. When you go to preach, I'll give my testimony. Wouldn't it be wonderful, Jesus? And then you can preach and lead people to you. Jesus said, no, 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 no. You're not coming with us. You go back to your family. You go back to your community and tell them what God has done for you. And the scripture says that he went back, he was a witness, and the people that heard his testimony were amazed. So ministry starts at home to those closest to you, those that you associate with on a regular basis. Verse 5. And when they arrived in Salamis, or Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, They also had John as their assistant. So what they are doing here, they reach Cyprus and they're on on the east coast of Cyprus in a place called Salamis. And from there they will go to Pepperonis, Pineapolis, and Hammington. (laughs) Okay, if that went over your head, I know my jokes are not that good. But notice here, the scripture says they had John Mark with them. And he is the person who would eventually write the Gospel of Mark, which is largely based on the eyewitness of Peter. And in 1 Peter 5.13, suggests that Peter led John Mark to the Lord. John Mark is the nephew of Barnabas. So perhaps... Paul, or Saul at this time, was agreed to John Mark to come on this mission because it's Uncle Barney's nephew. And John Mark was pleased to do so. But John Mark is going to become a bone of contention. And as we go further into Acts, you're going to see a rift develops here between John Mark and Paul. And ultimately, that's going to lead to a separation of Barnabas and Paul, Acts 15, 36 to 41. So John Mark, if you remember from last week, when Peter was delivered from prison, Peter went to the house of John Mark. It was Mary, the mother of John Mark's house, where the People were gathered together praying. And what we see in scripture that John Mark is young, he's rich. Some even say that he is the rich young ruler. But the Bible describes him here as an assistant, as a helper, as a minister. And that word means that he was an under rower. He was an under oarsman. 
You've seen those old movies with the ships where they have the oars sticking out the side and the people below deck rowing, yeah? Well, that was the role of John Mark. He's an assistant. He's not seen. He's, he's really working under the scene or behind the scene. And we don't know. Maybe he got fed up of that. Maybe that's why he's going to desert them towards the end of this passage and go back to mommy. We don't know. Well, he's an under oarsman. You know that we need under oarsmen in the church. We do. For the ship to move, to steer the ship. We need people who are not always prominent, not always seen up front. But nonetheless, the work and the roles that are undertaken by those under oarsmen, by those assistants, is absolutely crucial. So we could say that John Mark was like a roadie. So Paul and Barnabas were the rock stars. <laughs> so he would set up the guitars, the amplifiers, the PA system. And when they come off stage and go to the hotel, he'd have to pack everything up and put it in the truck. Maybe he got fed up of that and said, you know what? I'm rich. I'm young. I ain't doing this no more. We don't know. We could only just take a guess at that. Verse 6 says, Now when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the pro-council, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, a sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So what we can understand from this is that in those days, it was customary for government leaders to have sorcerers, witches, wizards, warlocks, as part of their paid staff. And they were there to advise uh, government leaders and kings when they were going to make important decisions. So this leader here, Sergius Paulus, the scripture says, he has a real hunger for the word of God and he's calling for Barnabas and Saul to hear more of the word of God. But then one of his paid staff, his name is Elymas, he's a spiritual guru, the scripture says he calls himself Bar-Jesus. Bar in the Greek means son of. So he's calling himself, even though he's a sorcerer, he's calling himself son of Jesus. Did you know that false teachers often use Christian terminology that we would be familiar with and phrases to tickle the ears of the undiscerning, Second Timothy chapter 4. And I think it was in the past week, if I remember rightly, or the week before, I received an email from our national youth leader in regards to a cult or a sect called Church of Jesus, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony. Doesn't that sound like that's a, sound like a bonafide church, doesn't it? But the, this, this movement is targeting uh, students and young people who they know would be familiar with those terms 
and trying to convert them to what they believe. So we have to be discerning. Not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, the scripture says, is really calling upon the name of the same Lord that we call upon. So by Jesus, he's calling himself, he's named himself son of Jesus. He doesn't want his boss to get saved. Because if his boss gets saved and accepts Jesus Christ as Lord, he's going to pick up his P45. Amen. So he's withstanding Barnabas and Saul. And notice Paul's response in verse 9 to this bar Jesus. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him. And he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Amen. So this Elymas, this sorcerer, calling himself son of Jesus, Paul calls him out. And Paul says, you're not the son of Jesus, you're the son of the devil. Amen. But note here that Paul's not just doing this in the flesh. So this doesn't give us a right to go around (laughs) and call people son of the devil. It says, Paul filled with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is guiding Paul here. And Paul calls out this sorcerer and says, you're you're not who you're making out to be. And, you know, something similar happened to Paul in terms of him losing his sight. We know in Acts chapter 9 when he was converted, he lost his sight. So perhaps here Paul is thinking, you know what, Lord, just like how my sight was restored after three days, perhaps you will restore the sight of this sorcerer and he too will be converted uh, to Jesus Christ. We don't know. That could have been Paul's train of thought. But nonetheless, he said he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Something else I want us to notice here. In verse 9. It starts off by saying. Then Saul is also called Paul. So for the first time here. We see the name Paul. Being used for the apostle. In the New Testament. We've already seen. In, earlier in the passage. That Simeon. He had a Hebrew name. Simeon was the Hebrew name, and Niger was the Greek name of one of those prophets. Peter, his Greek name was Peter, but his Hebrew name is Cephas. So probably the closest thing I can think of to that is that, you know, some people have a government name and they have a road name. It's not, it's not exactly the same, but you can think of it along those lines. So it's the same person. Like my son, his name is Timon. But his road name is, I won't, I won't let you know his road name. In church, call him Timon. Amen. So there's nothing miraculous that happens here. 
God doesn't come down and change Saul's name to Paul. It's just that his, his government name is Saul, and his road name, because remember, he's an apostle to the Greeks. So his road name is Paul. It's interesting that the, the name Saul means requested one. Saul means the one in demand. Everyone's after you. Now, which would you prefer to be called? Saul or Paul? That means little or small. So Paul means little or small. Saul means the one that everybody wants. I think most of us probably want to call Saul, I think. But Paul here is exercising really the idea of of humility. He said, I don't want to be called the one in demand anymore. I've met Jesus, and I want you to call me Paul, little. What you notice in the life of Paul is a progressive humility. The more Paul walks with the Lord, the closer Paul gets to God, you see an increase in his humility with God. At the early part of his ministry, 1 Corinthians 15.9, Paul says, I am the least of the apostles. In the middle part of his ministry, Ephesians 3.8, Paul says, I am the least of all saints. And then towards the end of Paul's ministry, 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, I am the chief of all sinners. I wonder that as we are maturing as Christians, is our humility progressing? Seems to me sometimes the more God lifts us up is the more proud and arrogant we get. But let's look at the Apostle Paul's life here. Because you see, the nearer you get to God, we were singing about God's holiness this morning. The nearer you get to God and you realize that God is absolutely holy, he's a God of justice, he's a God of righteousness, is the more you see your sin and your fault. And that should cause us to bow down even lower in humility. May I, may you, may this church be as the Apostle Paul that progresses in humility the closer we get to God. Amen. Amen. So scripture says in verse 12, Sergius Paulus, this uh, government leader, he believed in the Lord. And notice what astonishes him. It's not that Elymas was struck with blindness. It says here, the teaching of the Lord The word of God, the doctrine of the Lord is what amazes and astonishes Sergius Paulus. And we started out on this journey saying that the book of Acts, it's all about Jesus. Don't get it wrong. It's not about the miracles. It's all about Jesus. It's all about the message of the gospel, how that can transform hearts and lives, and how we too are partnering with God to share that message of hope, even in this time in which we live. And then verse 13 says, Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, 
and John departed from them returning to Jerusalem. So we see here that John Mark returns to Jerusalem. It doesn't say why he returned. But as I mentioned, this is the beginning of a a conflict that's going to take place between John Mark and Paul and ultimately between Barnabas and Paul. Whatever happened there must have greatly offended the apostle Paul. And the commentators have two basic explanations as to possibly why John Mark departed. Some say because he was rich, not used, used to hard life, uh, he returned back. In other words, I'm not, I'm not doing any more of this under-rowing, out-of-sight ministry. I've had enough of it. Verse 13 says that they came to Perga. Perga is at sea level. And they're going to Pisidia, which is at 4,000 feet above sea level. And the thing is that between Perga and Pisidia, there's only one route. And it's one of the most dangerous roads in the Roman Empire. Full of gangs and bandits. And perhaps John Mark says, you know, I'm I'm, I'm not doing this. I I can't take this. So maybe that's why he forsook them and went back. Home. Other commentators say that from verse 13, we see it starts off there. It says, now when Paul and his party set sail, or Paul and his companions set sail. So it looks like there's a switch of leadership here. So John Mark came on the mission because his uncle Barney is leading it and he's happy to uh, go under his uncle's leadership. But here in verse 13, there's a switch in leadership, it appears, which says, now Paul and his party set sail. And I don't think Barnabas minded this, because he's a very gracious man. But maybe John Mark took offense to this. Maybe he was thinking, Paul, who do you think you are? At the start of this mission, my uncle was in charge, and now you can push up yourself and take over the leadership. You know, I think Paul was a very, very difficult man to work for. Would you want the Apostle Paul as your pastor? Really? <laughs> well, maybe I think he would do some good for us, but Paul was a very, he was an educated man, we know that. He has a double doctorate degree in theology. But he was a very straight down the line man. Paul saw things in black or white. He was a no-nonsense. He didn't mince his words. Look what he did with his elephant here. You son of the devil. He was a very, and he was a tough man. He was whipped. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. And the brother is still standing. And you don't hear much moaning and complaining for him. So he was a man that, he didn't take excuses. So you can see maybe why this switch of leadership would have probably caused John Mark to say, you know what, I can't work for this man here. He's too hard to please. But you know the good thing that comes out of this, and that's why we looked at the Romans 8.28, God eventually brings reconciliation. Even though this rift starts and it causes, in Acts chapter 15, 
Paul and Barnabas to separate. Paul takes Silas, doesn't he, in Acts chapter 16. But God reconciles this relationship. And later on we read in the New Testament where Paul will call for John Mark. Bring him to me. He has use. I want him to be a part of what I'm doing. Amen. So God can reconcile. I don't know. Is there a rift in a relationship in here this afternoon? Is there a rift in a family situation? Is there a rift in your work situation? God is a God who reconciles disagreeing parties. And there can be forgiveness. Amen. I want to close by saying, and part of this comes from my experience, that I learned that whenever you have a mountaintop experience, you have a jubilant victory, a celebration. Fasten your (laughs) seatbelts. You can't live up there. You can't live up there on the mountaintop. And I've learned this lesson so many times. When you come out of a jubilant situation, fasten your seatbelt. So we see here this government leader is brought to Christ. What a victory. They're on their first mission. And then this Elymas, this sorcerer, is dealt with. What a miracle that happens. He's struck with blindness. And then John Mark leaves them. You know, some of us in here are hurt. People have hurt us. Could be the same people that built you up. One of the things I notice in football, you know, when a new manager comes into a club, they're singing his name. Yes, they did it to Jesus too. But when the results are not going the right way, they sing, you don't know what you're doing. (laughs) Boy. And if you've ever been to a live football match, some of the language in there is a bit fruity. I'm sure they switch off those microphones on the, <laughs> when they're showing it on match of the day. <laughs> they did it to Jesus. One week before he was crucified, they was hailing him up as king, weren't they? When we go on a high, often follows a low. And I believe that what God is saying in here today Some people are in the valley. You've been let down by someone. You've been hurt. It could be something recent. It could be something from months ago or years ago. It could be someone close to you. All things. Somebody say all things. When you're in the valley, you need to know that all things. I want to end by praying for reconciliation. I want you to reflect. If there is pain in your heart, someone betrayed you, someone told lies on you, someone let you down and you really trusted that person. And you find yourself now in a valley situation. After what looked so good, so promising, now you're in the valley. If you're here today, I'm going to ask you to come forward. If you're hurt, every time you think of that situation, it pains you. 
You can't, you can't get past it. It's, it's like something that's from your past that's holding you back. All things, remember. All things. Even the horrible things, even the pain, even those lies, even that betrayal. All things work together today for your good because you're called according to the purpose of God. I wonder if anybody in here would be honest enough to say, Pastor, I'm coming forward because I want this situation to be reconciled, just like with Paul and John Mark, who was laid to partner together again in ministry. What a witness that must have been to all those who had heard this story. Can you imagine? Paul and John Mark reunited. What a witness. Amen. If you're here, let's stand. If you're here, I'm going to ask you to come forward. Don't miss upon this opportunity. Don't let pride hold you in your seat. You're the one that's feeling the pain. You're the one who's hurting. Just come forward. Can you change the screen, please? So that they can hear this on the stream, but they can't see who's coming forward. So if that helps you to step out, please come, because your identity will be protected. We in this house are believing that today our brothers and sisters who have come forward are going to be set free. If there's a rift in an important relationship, you feel like you're drifting apart. God is going to heal that in this house today. Amen. Bondages, chains, deception, lies, untruths from the past. Could be even from your childhood. Could be in your teenage years. Someone that you trusted, but they let you down big time. It's still hurting every time you, you, you think back to that. It pains you. God's going to set you free from that today in this house. Amen. I've told you this story that once I cut my finger, this finger here, with a very, very sharp scissor. And it wouldn't stop bleeding. I had to go to the hospital to get stitches. Because the, the gash was that wide. Today I have a scar on my finger, but it's not bleeding. I can bend my finger, it doesn't hurt me. When I look at it, it doesn't hurt me. So it doesn't mean that the events in your life weren't real. That whether intentionally or unintentionally people hurt you, that's the reality of life. But what God wants to do for you in this house today is that when you look at it, you're not bleeding anymore. When you look at it, it's not hurting anymore. As real as that situation was, you can, I can use my finger. I can use it to play an instrument. I can use it to pick things up. I don't think, is it going to bleed if I stretch it out? No, it's healed. That's what God wants to do for your heart in this house today. That's what God wants to do for your mind in this house today. You can look back, but God's taken the sting out of that pain. Amen? I'm going to ask you to do something physical. I'm going to ask you to cup your hand. Put your hand like a cup. 
and just imagine whatever that circumstance or it could be multiple circumstances imagine that you are holding that hurt that pain that rift imagine you are holding it in your hand amen and I'm going to come to each one of you individually I'm going to ask you Whatever that thing is in your hand, it could be abuse, whatever you're holding in your hand, in your heart, you're thinking, this thing really cut me to the heart. It hurt me. I'm going to ask you to put it into my hand as an act of faith that you are letting go of that pain and hurt. And you're doing something physical by which you can remember it today. On Sunday, the 19th of February, 2023, I came to the altar at Harvest Temple. I brought that burden. I brought the pain. And I placed it in the hand of the shepherd of this house. And I'm not taking it home with me. And I'm believing God to soothe that pain. That every time that comes back to my memory... I see it. I understand what was due to me. I know it was intentional. They're meant to hurt me, to crush me. But the pain ain't there because I'm going to forgive. Amen? Are you ready to do that as an act of faith? Are you ready to receive your healing? If you can play something softly, which your worship team, you can come and support me if you feel that's what you want to do. So I'm just going to come to you individually and ask you to release that into my hand. Amen. And then we're going to pray a prayer. Amen.